Thank you for listening to this gospel resource from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Wiley, Texas. Feel free to use or share this resource, but we ask that you not alter the content in any way. For more information about Cornerstone Baptist Church, please visit us at cornerstonewiley.org. All right, it's about eight after, so we need to start if I'm going to finish on time. So let's go ahead and pray, and we'll begin. Father, we thank you again for today. Thank you for the opportunity once again to look at your word, look at the confidence that we can have in it, knowing that it, it is your word, Father, the books we have truly are your scripture. We thank you for the men we've been able to study, uh, for their faithfulness and preserving that word, Father, and for their love for that word. And we pray that, that uh, their love would be our love as well, and our desire to preserve it would be, would be their desire, and we would be one in the spirit in the way we love, the way we uh, examine, in the way we're instructed and affected uh, by the scriptures that you've so kindly and, and graciously given us. We thank you for these things in Christ's name. Amen. Are any questions about last week's lesson? We were introduced to Papias. How many like Papias? I said last week, one of my favorite historical figures, Papias. So hopefully that was instilled into you in some sense. But a great, wonderful man, uh, very unique situation in history. Uh, what we're doing uh, is, again, we're looking at the different models of canonicity. Uh, just briefly review that the intrinsic model is the one that's held by most scholars, uh, most unbelieving scholars and a number of believing scholars. And the idea there is that the, the canon was imposed upon the church. The church would have never uh, wanted or desired or needed a canon. They were this spirit-led community who had an oral tradition and that was sufficient. A group of men later came along who wanted to impose their will upon the church, so they found a bunch of these documents and uh, pressed the church to accept these documents as a canon and therefore had control over the church, where the intrinsic model says it would have been a natural desire, natural tendency for the church to want to have scriptures, to expect a canon to be added to the Old Testament canon. And so we've been looking at the arguments that the intrinsic model uses to prove their position, and we've seen that they're, very, they're not very strong. It's surprising how weak their arguments actually are. And last week we looked at uh, one example, we'll see the second one today, of early Christians who seem to be saying that we don't want a new canon. We don't need a new canon. And last week we looked at a man by the name of Papias. Today we'll look at something they, they take that Paul says to try to support that view. Remember, Papias lived in uh, from 600 to 130 AD, and he was famous for a book called Exposition of the, Log the Logia of the Lord. And like I said, the Logia there is untranslated because we're not really sure what it means. There's a broad range of meaning. But the I ideas are, it means the accounts or the works or the deeds, the sayings of the Lord. So he's trying to collect a, a, all of the information he can about the Lord, whether it's something he said, something he taught, something he did, and put that into a book. And he did put it into a book, a five-volume book, which unfortunately is not with us, that, that's been lost. But a, a historian by the name of Eusebius records a, a number of uh, quotes by him or parts of that book that give us insight into what he's saying. And the most important part Eusebius includes is his introduction or his explanation, sort of a preamble, where he tells us what he's doing with his book. And there's one phrase in that preamble where it says, for I do not think that, that what was to be gotten from the books would profit me as much as what came from the living and abiding voice. So the, the secular scholars say, here's a man, a very important church leader, uh, a bishop of a, of a large city, very influential city, saying that he doesn't care about books. 
But what he cares about is this living and abiding voice. And what we did last week, we looked a little bit more into this, uh, what this living and abiding voice is. And just to summarize, what he's saying here is not that we, we want oral tradition and at the rejection or at the expense of text of a written canon. He's saying what, what he's doing here is he's trying to collect all of the sayings of the Lord. And he knows that the generation of men who knew the Lord uh, are, are passing. They're going to be gone soon. In fact, we uh, saw the different people he addresses, and he's speaking about people coming into Hierapolis, this very uh, uh, famous city, a city that a lot of people come through. And he wants to know if these people have heard anything from the elders who knew the Lord and his disciples. And he lists a number of these uh, people. So there's a group of elders who were instructed by the disciples of Jesus. So people that come to the town who knew these elders, he wants to know what they taught about what the disciples actually said. These disciples now are past. And then he says, and also, and he names two other disciples that appear to be living. Uh, the, the, when he talks about the elders and what they heard, it's what the disciples of Jesus said. And it's when he refers to this man by the name of Antion and John the Elder, he's saying what they say. So the indication is these group of men have, have died that were Jesus' disciples, but the men who they taught are still alive, so tell me what they said so I can put it in my book. Or if you've heard anything that these two living disciples said, tell me what they said so I can also put it in my book. And as you, we said last week, he collected five books of information that these people had relayed to him. And uh, so what he's saying here is not that, yeah, we, don't, we reject text over oral tradition. What he's saying here is, as any historian would, when I want to get information about something, I want to get as far back to the source as I possibly can. I want to go back to those, if I can't talk to the eyewitnesses, and there are two eyewitnesses still living, then I want to go back to those who actually heard the eyewitnesses and take what they said and put it in my book. And it was the way history was done back then. The closer you got to the source, uh, the original people, the more accurate your history was. And that's what Papias is doing, trying to get back as close as he can to that time of the apostles so that he can record what Jesus said, firsthand accounts he wants. Again, this is the normal historical process, not only that that the um, uh, they did back then, but that we do today. We use the example of the Civil War, how good it would be if you were living in the 30s and you had all these books about the Civil War, if you could sit down and talk to somebody who actually fought in the Battle of Gettysburg, how beneficial that would be. All those books that you have uh, would be important, but not as important as a firsthand eyewitness or maybe uh, the son of a Gettysburg survivor. Maybe the, father, the, the man is dead, but his son still lives. You'd interview that son to find out what that son said, what, what, he, what his father told him, uh, even a grandson who knew the, the, the grandfather in the Civil War would still be beneficial to talk to. So that's what Papias is doing. And, um, and there's even some indication of this happening in, in the New Testament. When, when there's founders of a tradition or an important historical figures of that tradition, when they're ready to fade from the scene, uh, there's often a, a rush uh, in these communities to get as much information as they can from these people before they die. And there's even some indication of that going on in the New Testament. For example, uh, Second Peter, the last letter Peter wrote, one of the last books 
of the uh, New Testament. He says this, Therefore, I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them and have been established in the truth which is present with you. I consider it right as long as I'm in this earthly dwelling to stir you up by way of reminder, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent. Also, our Lord Jesus Christ has made it clear to me, as also he's made it clear to me. In other words, I'm dying soon. Christ made that clear to me. Therefore, with these remaining days, I want to use my abilities to stir you up, to remind you of the things that I've taught you about. He said, I will also be diligent at any time after my departure that you will be able to call these things to mind. So here he is. He knows he's going to die soon. Uh, his last wish, his last efforts are, are done to stir these people up in the words that he's already taught them. Uh, Paul as well in 2 Timothy 4, 6, for I'm ready to be poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. 2 Timothy is almost a, a last will and testament of Paul, the last thing he's writing to the church. And there's a seriousness uh, in that book. He knows he's going to depart soon, so he wants to impart to this disciple, this primary important disciple of his, everything he can before he, he departs the scene. Uh, one writer says this, uh, the testament aura, that's A-U-R-A, surrounds the writings of the New Testament, uh, testamentary aura, particularly the latter ones. The apostles and their assistants are taking care to provide for the churches when the apostles depart from the scene. This is being done by the preparation of written materials to function in an ongoing way for the life of the church. So they're, they're writing documents. They know they're going to die soon. So what do they do? Not try to preserve some oral tradition, but put down what they can in writing for the church when they pass. And the church also uh, is involved in this as well. Uh, some famous men that we know of today. Uh, you ever hear of uh, Ian Murray or read any of his books? He wrote some famous books on uh, Jonathan Edwards. He wrote a massive two volumes on um, Martin Lloyd-Jones. Uh, he wrote some books on revival and ro revivalism. Very influential man. He got a start in Christianity by being sort of the uh, assistant to Martin Lloyd-Jones when it was clear that Martin Lloyd-Jones was going to pass to the going to die soon, they assigned Ian Murray to help him collect his writings and his thoughts so that we could have as much from this man, glean as much from him before he dies for the benefit of the church. So uh, this happens all the time. Uh, Mark Dever, uh, anybody here of Carl F. Henry, uh, a very famous theologian, 20th century theologian, was big in the battles with uh, liberalism and fundamentalism in the 20s, 30s, and, or 30s, 40s, and 50s. He wrote a very famous systematic theology. Uh, the man who started Christianity today, uh, Mark Dever, was sort of his assistant assigned to him so that they, he could gather up all, as much information from him when he passed away. Uh, J.I. Packer, a man by the name of Mark Jones, who you see a lot of his writings now on, on Puritans and stuff like that, he uh, was, was assigned to J.I. Packer for that very same purpose. Uh, Zach and I were talking last week, and he mentioned that there's a, um, a man assigned to R.C. Sproul's family. I guess R.C. Sproul died rather suddenly, so there wasn't time for—and for, these men spent years with these, these other men, these great leaders. Uh, there wasn't quite that much time with R.C. Sproul, but they've still assigned a man to that family. Uh, to talk to the family to get the information they can. So when, when these generations fade, uh, there's a desire in the church and the people themselves to preserve what they can. And Papias is on the very edge of, of that generation, that new Christ is fading, it's going. Uh, the two disciples will be dead soon. They've got to be in their 80s or 90s. Uh, the elders are getting older. They're going to pass soon. So get as much as I can at this time. That is that, that true and living voice that he desires, not... He's not saying that we need oral over um, written traditions.
And any questions or comments about that? Okay, we covered what? We spent almost an hour in last week, so I, I know I missed a lot, but any questions you want to feel free to ask. So that, that's Papias by way of view. The second one is a little bit more easy to deal with. It's the Apostle Paul. Uh, we don't need a whole lot of background like we did with Papias, but it, it's in uh, 2 Corinthians 3, uh, 36. Uh, Paul makes this statement. Let me see. This is what Paul says. Um, God has made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. So they, they basically take one verse, pretty much wrench it out of context. Context, And what they say here is that the, uh, the spirit here it is oral tradition. They're, they're, what he's talking about are, are two mediums or two modes of revelation. There's oral revelation, which is the spirit, and that gives life to us. And there's also the, the second mode of revelation, which is textual, which is the letter, and the letter kills. So what, what these scholars say here is Paul is referring to an oral and a textual form of revelation, or mode of revelation. The one gives life, the oral, and the textual, the letter kills. Okay, is that what Paul is doing? Is he talking about two modes of revelation? And, and no, he's not, N not even close. It, it's amazing the stretch you have to make in order to support this idea. Uh, what Paul is talking about is, is to what? Pardon? Two covenants, not two forms of revelation. They're, they're two different covenants that he's speaking of. One is summarized or idealized in the spirit, and one is idealized by the text. And what would these two covenants be? One would be the mosaic, he's going to say later, in tablets of stone, it's engraved upon. And the other one would be the new covenant, which he says is engraved upon your hearts. So there, there's two covenants here that Paul is referring to, not two modes of revelation. Again, it seems more reasonable to assume that he's speaking of two covenants, contra, uh, uh, contrasting the mosaic covenant with the new covenant. One focused on the law, on written text, the other focused on the heart and on the spirit, not the way that those covenants are preserved for us. Therefore, Paul calls himself a minister of a new covenant, an apostle who has the divine call to usher in a new age of grace and forgiveness that comes with this new covenant. This is confirmed in the context where in verse 3, Paul Contrast the tables of stone with the tables of the human heart. The first is a clear reference to the Mosaic Covenant where Moses received the law on tablets of stone. So he's saying this one covenant, it was made, it was given on tablets of stone, where the second uh, is equally obvious reference to the new covenant where it promises to write the law of God on the hearts of the people. So Paul makes the same contrast later by comparing the ministry of condemnation and the ministry of spirit. Now, so the contrast here is not speaking of modes of revelation. Rather, it highlights the role of the law in each covenant. In the old covenant, uh, it, it condemns those who are under it because they have no power to keep the law. It basically gives them a law and, and puts a burden upon them that they cannot keep. Where the second new covenant, uh, the law is still there, but the law, now there's uh, internal giving of the spirit, where now those who have the spirit are, have the power and desire to actually keep and obey the law, not perfectly, but obey the law to the degree that it does please God. 
Uh, there are many other biblical texts that make this same contrast. We could look at Ezekiel 36, 26, uh, John 1, 7, grace came through Jesus Christ, the law came through Moses, uh, Romans 2, 29, uh, Galatians 3, 16, 17 and 18, and 4, 28 and 26, where, where the uh, law is compared to, to Hagar and the, the new covenant, the spirit is compared to Sarah. One has no promises, the other has received promises. So if we look at a, a slide of what Paul's talking about here, if we read through this section, which we won't do, uh, two covenants and a relationship to the law. The new covenant, it's characterized by the spirit, uh, it's engraved upon the hearts of the people. Uh, this new covenant, it gives life. It provides righteousness. Those who believe our righteousness is imputed to them. And this covenant is a permanent covenant. Where the old Mosaic covenant, Paul is saying that this is, it's based on the letter. Uh, it, it's powerless. That's what the idea of letter there is. Not just the mode it's written, but it, it's powerless to do anything. Where the new covenant, it, it's written by the spirit in the heart and it's therefore active and powerful, uh, again, engraved upon stone, engraved upon a heart. Uh, the Mosaic Covenant, all it did was condemn. Just condemn. Uh, and uh, kills, and the one is permanent, and the Mosaic Law fades away. And he's getting that idea of fading away from an illustration he's using. When Moses received the law in Exodus 33, remember, he went up to the mountain, and the Lord spoke directly to him, and he came back down from the mountain, and it says his face was glowing from the presence of the Lord, and the people that were listening said, cover up your face, we can't bear to look at you, that this image, the glory of God, had spread to him in such a way that it was, it was shining and bothering the people, so they said, cover your face. So he would teach, and when that glory faded, he'd go back again and come down, and that, that, that glow is looked upon as the glory of this old covenant. And Paul says that this covenant, this glory fades away. It's temporary, where the glory of the new covenant is permanent. Those who are transformed by it are permanently transformed, and the glory will never fade. So again, Paul's not speaking of two modes of revelation. He's speaking of two covenants, one characterized by the spirit and one characterized by the letter. Again, once this is understood, uh, the statement, letter kills, but the spirit gives life, actually has meaning. It's not a reference to the physical act of writing, but the external nature of the law when it is considered apart from the spirit. Law is merely expressed in writing. And it's even more evident when you look at the whole context of 2 Corinthians uh, 2 and 3. Uh, there appears to be a, a group of false teachers who uh, have invaded the Corinthian church, uh, and Paul calls them mockingly super apostles. They're huber apostolos uh, in 11.5 and 12.11. It's kind of a mocking way to re refer to him. They keep building up these apostles. They're making fun of Paul uh, because he's small in stature, uh, his inferior speaking abilities, uh, his lack of successful ministry. The, the churches there were relatively small churches. We think of the Corinthian church as being a, a big, massive megachurch. Most of these churches were relatively small, uh, even by today standards. So these men come in and they're uh, imposing this idea on the Corinthians that Paul is not to be listened to, he's to be ignored, and in some way they're trying to, to press upon them a, a, a new understanding of the Mosaic Covenant. They're trying to bring them in some way under the law again, much like was done in Galatians. Paul's not as explicit about it as he is in Galatians, but you can see it's there, uh, that, that they're trying to bring people back under the law. Uh, and we see in verse 1 in 2 Corinthians 3, these, these letters of, con of commendation. 
uh, he, they say, uh, Paul says, I, well, let me go ahead and read it here. I thought I had it written down here. There's a letter of commendation. These people, these super apostles come with resumes, with long resumes, talking about all the, the great things that they've done and how successful their ministries are. And they're looking at Paul and saying, well, where's your letter of recommendation, Paul? Where's your resume? Where uh, is the evidence of your success in ministry like we have to show for our ministry? And Paul is addressing that issue in 1 Corinthians 2.3. He says this, are we beginning to commend ourselves again, or do we need as some letters, as some letters commending to you from, commended, letters of commendation to you from you? So look, you're, uh, you're, you're boasting, you're bragging. Uh, you want some kind of letter of recommendation, of commendation from me. He says, and he says this, this is how he answers that question, this request for a resume or letter of recommendation. He says, you are our letter written in our hearts, known and read by all men. So if you want a letter of recommendation, look at yourself. Look at your, your own conversion. How did you get converted? How are you saved? How are you brought into the family of God? By my ministry to you, by the gospel that I preach to you. So you want a letter of recommendation, look at yourself. And if you deny my ministry, then you deny your very own salvation because my ministry brought you that salvation. So it's a very powerful argument. What could they say? Yeah, you know, we remember you came here, Paul. We remember we were dead in our sins, that we were pagans. We worshiped in, in, in temples. We worshiped idols. We were involved in all, all the filth of our culture. Uh, you came and preached the gospel to us, and we were transformed. We were made into new creatures, and, and we changed our ways. We changed our life based on, on your gospel that you preached. It worked in us in, in a powerful way. And Paul's saying, if you deny me, you deny that, and you deny your very own existence as a Christian community. So, And then he goes from there, from these letters, to how this letter was written. And it was not a letter written on stone, a letter written in your heart, and just affirming uh, what his ministry did. And if you deny me then you deny your very own salvation. Look at the ministry I brought to you. That is a reflection of who I am and what I've done. Again, he, he, and it says, puts their back against the wall and says, uh, either choose me or choose them. Uh, if you choose me, you choose my ministry. If you choose my ministry, you accept the salvation that I brought you. If you reject it, then the life that I brought you is nothing. It's nothing. If you choose them in their ministry, you're choosing a fleeting, temporary, cold, hard letters of the law resulting in death and condemnation. If you choose me, you're choosing spirit, life, righteousness, and permanence. So like Papias, when we examine a bit, this a bit closer, uh, it appears that Paul is not contrasting two modes of revelation, one oral and one written, but two different covenants and the effects that those covenants will have on those who come under them. One, one writer says this, given Paul's argument, we would not expect him or early Christians in general to have some aversion to new written scriptures from God. Paul is not opposed to written law, the written law of the old covenant, and we have no reason to think he would be opposed to the written law in the new covenant. Being in the age of the spirit is not the same as being in the age of orality. After all, Paul is communicating these covenantal truths in a, in a written letter. Indeed, one might even make the opposite argument. Now that the spirit has come in fullness and God's people are empowered to keep the law, there would be an even less resistance to the written word. 
So if that new covenant isn't more important than the old, and the old was written down, why aren't you writing down the new covenant is what this author is saying. It's, again, a very powerful argument. And again, when you read these, Brett brought this up last week with, in a question about Papias. When you read this, you know, and, and look at it carefully, you have to ask yourself, why do such smart people believe something that is so easily proven wrong? And when you read the, the men who hold to this uh, extrinsic view of Scripture, uh, I mean, they, they quote this like, like it's a fact. Yeah, that's what Paul really meant without any real investigation into or even a concern for what Paul is actually saying or what he's trying to convey to the people. Any questions or comments about that? It's pretty clear what Paul's talking about when you see it from covenants and not orality or textuality. So those are the only two arguments they really have in going in church history and looking to see what the early church thought about orality versus textuality. Uh, there's really nothing else that the church has written to, to back that. Jeff, how would you answer that? I mean, in today's world, it seems, well, it's so evident, but yet very intelligent. And, you know. Yeah, they're, they're just blind. I mean, they've got their, their presuppositions. Uh, that you really can't prove that, that they just believe them, that and, and they just look for support for those presuppositions. And presupposition is such a good word. It, it, it is. It, yeah, yeah. But you know, there, you know, there can be nothing supernatural. That's one of their presuppositions. That everything has to be natural. That there can be no divine influence, and that pretty much that that's the foundation of everything they believe is remove the supernatural in some way and any way that we can do that uh, it is sufficient doesn't matter how far we have to stretch to try to prove it how much words we have to put in these early men's mouths to do it that they're going to do that and it wouldn't be much to admit it just you know you can still say yeah papius wanted a textual tradition paul wanted a textual tradition they're not supporting oral traditions here over textual you can still admit that and not have your whole presuppositional world fall apart, your whole worldview fall apart. But they're so desperate for any support that they'll make the, these, these big glaring mistakes that are very easy to, uh, to demonstrate as wrong. Jeff, I, I, on my phone, one evening as I was driving home from the office, this thing popped up. And it was a podcast, so, quote, the Trojan horses of the church. Mm -hmm. And it was a fundamentalist Baptist guy. The first one he was addressing in a series was a Trojan horse called Calvinism. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and, and just to listen to bits of it, you know, I'm thinking such a violation of the scripture and of every point that he said. Yeah. It can be countered. Yeah. And, and another thing, too, is, you know, you can disagree, but, but why that rhetoric? You know, why call them Trojan horses? You know, p people, Arminians and Calvinists have grown up side by side in the church, each, each perform different functions. And I would never call Arminianism a Trojan horse. It's wrong. And here's where I think it's wrong. And that's the only argument we need. We don't need to slap labels on it or names on it or derogatory uh, terms with it. Just, yeah, okay, they're wrong. Uh, we're right. We think ours is better because we're right. They, they do some good stuff. We do better stuff. But the idea of, you know, that, that, that's what we all think. <laughs> but, um, you know, wh why be pejorative like that? Why be negative and, and on, on brothers in Christ? Why do that? And to me, 
Pardon? Exactly. Yeah, we can sit down and talk about our differences. You can go and have your church and, and plant churches and, and do whatever you do under the power and strength of the Spirit. And there have been some Armenians who, who clearly were, I mean, were saved and, and did do great things for, for God. But, um, you know, why, why do that, that name-calling and stuff like that? It's not, and Calvinists do it the same way. I mean, I, I belong to Calvinistic forums on Facebook, and, yeah, they're, they're just as guilty of it. But it doesn't need to be done. All right, anything else before we move on to the next category? All right. Now, another argument is used, and it's a very powerful one. This, to me, is probably the most powerful one. Um, so it takes some time to, to dissect it and answer it. And, and there's a lot, of, a lot of evidence for this, I think. Um, what they say is that the early church believed that in their lifetime, Christ was going to return. And therefore, why would they have gone through all the trouble of producing a canon? Something that they knew may take 100 years or so. Why did they desire to collect these documents and preserve them for future generations uh, when, in fact, Christ was going to come at any moment? And most of them, it appears, expected Christ to come before they died. And there's some very strong statements in the scriptures that that certainly can be taken that way. Um, But the first thing is, is that what they thought? And if they did, would that have naturally led to uh, a rejection of textuality for an acceptance of exclusive oral uh, text to uh, provide them information about the new covenant? So um, first of all, did the early church believe that Christ would return in their lifetime? And scripture does support this idea. Uh, there's uh, an appeal to apocalyptic passages such as Mark 30, uh, Luke 21, Matthew 24. Uh, there's these kingdom of God passages that say the kingdom of God is going to come immediately before this generation passes away. Uh, some of these passages we look at here. Um, these are sort of the kingdom passages, Matthew 16, uh, 28. Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And people have tried all kinds of ways, uh, you know, to get around these words, the idea of generation meaning different things. Uh, and Jesus was saying to them, truly I say to you, there are some who, of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God uh, when it has come with power. Uh, again, Luke 20, uh, 9, 27. But I say to you truthfully, there are some of those standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Uh, Matthew, and these are all just parallel passages. Uh, the only one, the only gospel that doesn't have these is, is John's gospel. Matthew 10, 23, but whenever they persecute you in one city, flee to the next, for truly I say to you, you will not finish going through the cities until of Israel until the Son of Man comes. So that appears that they're, they're saying here that a lot of people here aren't going to die until this takes place. There's going to be people here living that will witness this, this event. Uh, some more of these. Some, uh, actually, this is. Uh, yeah, for one, I'm go, go to. Um, I was going to read one to you. Let's look at Luke 20, 21, Luke 21, 10 through 33. We'll just read through this to get the idea uh, of what these scholars are presenting to us as evidence for the fact that the kingdom of God would come in the generation that heard Jesus. 
and it's a rather long passage, but he, the issue here is things to come, what's going to come in the future, starting at verse 10. He then continued by saying to them, nation will rise against nation uh, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be great earthquakes in various places, plagues and famines. There will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all these things, uh, they will lay their hands on you and will persecute you, delivering you to the synagogues and prisons, bringing you before the kings and governors for my namesake. I will lead, it will lead to an opportunity for your testimony. So make up your minds not to prepare to make your minds not to prepare beforehand to defend yourselves. For I will give you utterance and wisdom, which none of your opponents will be able to resist or refute. But you will be betrayed even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death. And it just keeps going on and on about all that they, they, they will suffer. Uh, down to 25, there will be signs and sun, the sun and moon and stars, and the earth dismay among the nations. And, uh, and on the earth dismay among the nations in perplexity at the roaring of the sea and the waves. Men fainting from fear and the expectation of the things which are coming upon the world, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. But these things begin to take, when these things begin to take place, strengthen up, lift, strengthen yourself up, lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Then he tells them this parable about the fig tree. Um, how it produces fruit in the summer, and you'll know uh, from the fact that it's producing fruit what season it is. He says, so then you will see these things happening. You will recognize that the kingdom of God is near. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. So what does it seem that Christ is saying here? That, look, you're going to be living when this happens. So the, these scholars say, well, why would the church prepare documents? Why would they collect all these uh, texts into a canon if they believed that they were going to be gone in their own generation? Why would they go through that? And again, it's a very powerful argument. Um, so the question is, you know, even if you, you say uh, you defend your view of intrinsic model of canonicity is true, why in the world would, you, would they have been slightly motivated to produce a canon if, they'd not expect, if they expected to die before Christ's return? Um, now, again, not easy to answer, but we're going we're to make a sh take a shot at it. I think it can be answered. Um, one thing that always strikes me about this when I hear this argument is um, how, if this interpretation is true, then, then how dumb were the people that wrote the Gospels, and how dumb were those people who accepted it if they had this understanding of the text? I, I mean, they're, they're producing a document. Let's say it, Matthew was written in 80, 90 AD, and people are, are getting their first look at it maybe in 100 AD. And they read these quotes about Christ saying that, yeah, this generation will not pass until these things take place. And then maybe, you know, 20 years later, yeah, it's very clear that generation is gone, yet they're still looking at these books and still claiming that Christ is the prophet of prophets, where the, these prophecies, if you look at them the way these scholars look at it, have clearly failed. So you scratch your head, well, how dumb were they to include these in a canon that, that showed pretty clearly that Jesus was a false prophet, that he was wrong. And uh, I think there, there's an answer for, for this that I think helps us understand it. Um, and first of all, it, it's, the, it's the nature of prophecy and, and predictions, especially around major cataclysmic events. Uh, it's often given to us in lumps, in, in big, massive chunks. And what we learn as we get closer to it, 
uh, it can be a bunch of events that are happening, but are ha not happening at the same time. From our perspective, it seems like yeah, all this is going to happen at once. But as these events start to take place, as we get closer and closer to the events, we see that you know, they are separated by time. A perfect example of this is the coming of Christ. Uh, the Jews thought what was going to happen, that Christ was going to come, uh, he was going to, Messiah was going to die, according to Isaiah 53, and then according to pretty much every other passage, he was going to take over the world, institute his kingdom, uh, raise up Israel to rule alongside him, and subject the nations of the Gentiles. That that was seen from one event from the perspective of Jews. When it started happening, you know, he's, he's teaching the disciples uh, in the Gospels, and he's telling them, you know, I'm going to die. And then after I die, certain things are going to happen. So, what, you're going to die? Now, that was there in the Old Testament as well. But piecing all these things together didn't really happen until after the events took place. They started seeing these things happening. Even after Christ uh, is raised again and getting ready to go up into heaven, what does Peter ask him? Well, when are you going to come back, Lord, and establish your kingdom? That was a, a good question for them from their perspective. When are you going to come back and do what's been promised, not only what was promised in the Old Testament, but what you promised us and the, these teachings that you gave us on uh, your, your coming, your return. You said it was going to happen before this generation, Lord. When, when's it, when are you going to do it? It was a very, very good question based on the information Peter had from the Gospels and from hearing Christ teach. So, again, as we get closer to the, these events, uh, we see that there can be great gaps in time. Again, a, a illustration of approaching a mountain. We've all been to, I've never been to big mountains, but when you're going uh, west from the east to west and you approach Colorado and you see the big Rocky Mountains, it looks like just one big train of mountains. But when you get up to them, you see that that, that one big mountain, there's another one behind it, and, and there's sometimes miles between those two mountains. That, that's what prophecy is often like. When we approach it, we see that it, it's, it's divided, it's separated by often large periods of times. Again, in the New Testament, Christ is going to come and the final judgment would soon follow. Uh, John says, I baptize you with water, uh, with, uh, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Uh, his winnowing fork is in his hand. He will thoroughly clear the threshing floor. He will gather his wheat into the barn. He will burn up uh, the chaff in unquenchable fire. So how did John see it from his perspective? I'm baptizing you with water, but he's going to come and do two things. The Spirit, he's going to give life, and then he's going to baptize you with fire. And those judgment, those are, are two things to John that are happening at one time. Uh, was John wrong? No, just from his perspective, that's the information he had, and that is what he was able to say. Uh, Peter, on the day of Pentecost, he quotes Joel 2, says, this is what has been spoken through the prophet Joel. And, and Peter quotes three verses. But if you go back and, and read Joel, uh, he's talking about a lot more. There's a lot more things that are happening in Joel than just the sending of the Spirit, uh, because these things in Peter's mind were compressed in, into one single event. And this is very much, very much what, like, Jesus is talking about in Luke 21. Uh, the day of the Lord is coming. Uh, the inhabitants of the land all tremble. Uh, there's darkness. There's thick clouds from fire that consumes everything in its path. Uh, it spreads over the mountains. Like on, This is from Joel 2, what's happening in Joel 2. Uh, it appears that there's a massive army coming towards Israel uh, that is a consuming fire that, that is going to judge the nations. Yet the only thing that happened that day was what? The giving of the Spirit. None of the other stuff happened. 
Well, again, because from their perspective, these things were, were happening at the same time. But once history is revealed, once these things occur, we realize, no, there's going to be a judgment, yes. But it's going to be separate from this giving of the Spirit. It's very clear in these passages that Jesus is speaking about the judgment of Jerusalem. If you're listening to Christ and you heard about these judgments coming, um, it probably you probably would have understood it as Jerusalem being judged, uh, that you're going to be in a house, you're going to be in a field, and, and God is going to come, and he's going to judge uh, this city for their sins. He wept over that city because of the judgment that was coming upon it. He foresaw that judgment and wept over it. So there, And imagine how powerful that would have been to the Jew to hear that, that God is going to destroy this city. He's going to scrape every stone from this city. Every stone's going to be removed, and the people will flee. Uh, it'll be complete devastation. Um, so he's speaking about that, but also when sometimes events are spoken of where a tragic event occurs, and it's sort of a, a symbol or a pattern or partial fulfillment uh, that is a marker for something greater that's going to happen. See, God is going to judge Jerusalem, but this simply is an indication of a much greater judgment to come. And as we progress through the scriptures, mainly in Revelation, what do we see in Revelation? This worldwide utter destruction. That was not necessarily all that was mentioned in Jerusalem to some degree, but as a shadow, as a pointer to this greater destruction, this greater death. So yeah, people were, were going to be there. They were going to see this judgment in 70 AD. But that's not the end of the judgment. There's more judgment to come. This is just a small piece of the judgment that God will wreak upon the world when I return back in my full glory. So yes, there was glory revealed at that judgment, as there always is. Uh, it was an act of God that he predicted he would do. So there's glory there. It, it predicted all through the Old Testament and, and the New. Uh, but there's going to be a, a greater glory revealed at, at that final coming when I return. And, and one way to, another way to see this is, again, get into the frame of mind uh, of the, uh, the New Testament Jews at this time. Uh, there are many times in the scriptures where the Jews thought something was going to happen, where promise was made to them. And part of it was made, but the other part wasn't. The one part is very clear that, yeah, that God has done this, <coughs> but he's left out major portions. And when that happened, did they say, well, God must be wrong? or God's promises must be broken. No, they, they realize that this is just a small piece, a small morsel, a, a first fruit of something greater that God is going to do. And there, there's a section of Isaiah. Uh, it, it's called the second Exodus. It's chapters 40 through 46, where th these incredible promises are made to the people of God as they're going into exile or getting ready to go into exile. Um, all these things God is promising them are going to happen when they come back. So he's encouraging them. Look, you're going to go into exile, but when you come back, all these incredible things are going to happen. And when you look at those promises, they're just astounding. For example, um, there's going to be a, uh, a, a new heaven and a new earth. Do not call to mind the former things. <clears throat> or consider things in the past. Behold, I'm going to do something new. Now it will spring up. Will you not be aware of it? 
I will even make a roadway in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, animals in the field will glorify me, and jackals and ostriches, because I have given waters to the wilderness and rivers to the desert to give drink to my chosen people. The people whom I form for myself will declare my praise. And all these references to water in their mind would have been references to the Spirit of God being given to the people to bring them and to bring the world to life. Another one. Isaiah 65, behold, I create a new heaven. So he's promising them, look, when you come back, I'm going to give you a, a new heavens and a new earth that you will live in. And the former thing, it's going to be so wonderful that you won't even remember the previous heaven and the previous earth. Uh, be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. And in Jerusalem, there will no longer be heard in her voice, the voice of weeping and the sound of crying. No longer will there be in it an infant who lives only a few days for an old person who does not live out his days. Uh, for the youth will die at the age of 100, and one who does not reach the age of 100 will be thought accursed. As for as my lifetime, the lifetime of a tree, so will be the days of my people. My chosen ones will fully enjoy the work of their hands. So these great promises that are being given to the people that are going to be fulfilled when they enter back into the land. Isaiah 45, I have sworn by myself, the word has gone out from my mouth in righteousness and will not turn back, that to me every knee will bow and every tongue will swear allegiance. Uh, they will say of me, only the Lord are righteous only in the Lord are righteousness and strength. People will come to him, and all who are angry at him will be put to shame. In the Lord, all the offspring of Israel will be justified and will boast. And in these passages, uh, this section here is full uh, of these amazing promises that God has made to the people. Uh, Israel will be saved uh, with an everlasting salvation. It says you will not be put to shame or humiliated to all eternity. Uh, the Lord's salvation, he says, will reach the ends of the earth. He says, is it too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob to restore the protected ones of Israel? I will also make you the light of the nation. He will expand their boundaries, according to Isaiah 54. Uh, the nations will come to Zion and, and bring all of their wealth to Jerusalem in Isaiah 6. So these promises are given to the people People, as God is warning them uh, of the coming judgment in exile, he's also giving them these promises that when they come back, these things will happen. Now the Jews come back. Did these things happen? No. Now to every Jew reading these passages, they thought, when we come back, this is what God is going to do. That was the nature of these prophecies. But as they got there, they saw, no, that, that these are for another, another time. We have some of the promises and we don't despair because those promises are given as a, a down payment for these other ones. But they didn't just throw up their hands and abandon God and, and forget him because they knew that how prophecy worked, that these things are given in, in pieces and in, in parts. But ultimately, one day they will be completely fulfilled. And, and that was the mindset that I believe the people who heard these prophecies of Christ had. Yeah, God, God can do these things partially. He can do them fully. Uh, the fact that he does them partially is simply an indication that ultimately he will do it completely and fully. Uh, one man says this, uh, The people of God had often seen from the Old Testament that prophecies were partially realized, and hence they anticipated the complete fulfillment in the future. Such a perspective helps explain why the early church was neither scandalized nor plagued into a crisis of confidence by the fact that Jesus did not come in 70 AD when Jerusalem was destroyed. The judgment of Jerusalem also factors as a pattern of the future judgment still to come. So that was a normal thought process for them. Yeah, he's going to do it. 
just not in the way that we understood it from our perspective. Not that God is lying, but that from our perspective, we simply didn't have the information uh, that we needed to make a final assessment of this happening. And there are also some indications of Jesus' teaching that um, he would, it would be delayed. And he spends great amount of time teaching the disciples uh, to wait for his return, as if this wait could be indefinite. Uh, the, he says, the gospel is to be preached to all nations before I return. Uh, the wicked slaves pro- fall prey to sin when they begin to think that their return of the master is delayed when he does not immediately return. Uh, the parable of the virgin indicates that there will be some time before the bridegroom returns and the church will be tempted uh, to, to turn away from that hope and, and to turn to other things. Uh, the Lord portrays himself as a master returning from a long journey. Um, the coming of the Son of Man is compared to the days of Noah. Life will be proceeding as normal in a normal fashion when he returns and no one will be able to gauge uh, that the judgment was at hand. So there is indication as well that he will be delayed. He will put off the coming until an undisclosed time. Um, and then secondly, was his, what time is it? We may have to close here. Yeah, we're way overdue. We'll stop here and then we'll, I'll kind of sum this up next week. So sorry for the, uh, taking too much time. All right. All right, we'll just, you're dismissed. Thank you. (laughs)